You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. heard me preach, um, you know that sometimes I can be a bit provocative, and I will be to start with a bit today, a bit provocative. Um, Hopefully you'll bear with me though, and it'll uh, make sense and set up uh, uh, our route into the text today. This is some of the most famous words in scripture, most well-known verses in scripture, and so we uh, want to take them seriously, and we also want to see, um, not become so familiar with them that we forget the power of what's being said in John 3, 16 through 21. Um, I was at a conference this last week in Minneapolis called the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors and Church Leaders. And uh, right when we registered, we received a magazine. Uh, it was an edition of World Magazine, which is a Christian magazine. And uh, the, the front page um, has uh, Pete Buttigieg on here, who's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's also running, running, running for the Democratic nomination for president. And the, uh, the statement on there is the gospel according to Pete. So Pete talks a lot about his Christian faith and, um, and, how, and how that forms his decision-making, how that affects how he lives. And, uh, and so what's interesting is that um, if you kind of take what he says about his Christian faith, um, it's interesting that it doesn't necessarily look a whole, lot of, um, a whole lot like what we'll see in John 3, 16 through 21. In fact, um, when he speaks of salvation, he often connects it to worthy ideas Helping the poor, the oppressed, this is from the article, of uh, um, helping the poor and oppressed, for example, but he doesn't emphasize core Christian doctrines like repentance and saving faith in Christ. When asked whether Jesus was his Lord and Savior, he initially skirted the question. He said that means different things to different people. When pressed, he offered a fleeting yes, but quickly pivoted back to the idea of good works. It's doing and having the attitudes of Jesus and not so much who he is and what he's done for sinners. Now, just to be a bit more provocative, there's also another article called The Gospel According to Trump. One person asked him, Trump, whether he has ever asked God for forgiveness for his actions. To to that, he responded, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so, he said. If I think I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't try to bring God into that picture. I don't. So interestingly, we've got to be careful that when it comes to the gospel, and I'm not trying to be um, political in this message at all. I'm just trying to say that our understanding of the gospel needs to not come from the voices that are out there, but come from the word of God. 
And I don't know that that's necessarily the sum total of what either of these men would say, but I am trying to say that um, we live in an America where the gospel, there's a lot of competing gospels, and there's a lot of different understandings of what we mean when we say we're a Christian. Um, I would say that if we were to try to um, try to summarize what the American gospel is, I think Christian Smith has done a good job of defining what Christians believe. Um, in his uh, massively significant book called Soul Searching, he did a research project and studied um, the, the spiritual lives of American teenagers. This book came out in 2005, and his research spanned many years before that. He was actually looking at people my age. And he just did this massive research project and go, many of them claim to be Christian. But when you press in on what they really believe and what they mean by that, it actually looks quite different than the Christianity we see in the Bible. And so here's a uh, summary of what he said. I think I've got a slide for this. That these are the five core doctrines of what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. That this is the default religion in America, and we're all kind of pulled towards this. Now, I'm not trying to pick anybody out because I see these tendencies in my own heart. All of my years in youth ministry, I see this everywhere. All my years in pastoral ministry, this is our default if we're not careful, because this is in the air we breathe. This is in every, this is in all kinds of Christian books. This is in all kinds of, and even some of these political statements kind of drip of some of these kinds of doctrines. So here is what the gospel would be. We, we looked at the gospel according to Pete, the gospel according to Trump. Here's the gospel according to America, and you'll see it kind of all fit together. Then what we want to do is look at the gospel according to Jesus from John chapter third, John chapter three. Okay. So here's what these five are according to moralistic therapeutic deism. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. That's actually true. Okay. It starts to go off the rails in point two. God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and in most world religions. Okay. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. So that's the therapeutic part of moralistic therapeutic deism. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So he's kind of what Christian Smith calls a divine butler. So you call him in when you need something, but other than that, he kind of stays out of your way. And good people go to heaven when they die. Do you see this kind of in our world? It actually sounds pretty good. And if you're honest, you probably live according to this a lot of the time. If you just look at your own prayer life, what are the things you pray about? So this isn't all of us. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm not trying to make some big political statement. I'm just saying this is the water we swim in. And this is the kinds of things we hear and see and even are tempted to believe. So just to be even a bit more provocative, what would be the moralistic therapeutic deism version of John 3, 16 through 21? I went ahead and put this up. Okay, there we go. So. If we were to convert this into this worldview, this is how John 3, 16 through 21 would read. God so loves the world that he basically stays out of your business. He doesn't care what you believe about him as long as you are sincere, because you're basically a good person. God did not send his son into the world because you needed saving from sin or wrath, but because he wanted to show you that love is all about affirming people just as they are. Just trust in whatever spiritual path you think is best. They are all basically the same. God will happily receive all people of goodwill. 
God just wants you to be happy, so live as you please. He doesn't judge or condemn anyone. Now you live your life, how you live your life is your business. Don't let anyone press objective morality on you. Life and light is all about being true to yourself. Let's leave behind the shackles of repressive Christian morality and live out tolerance and acceptance of everyone's truth, just like God does. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It is so easy, even in churches. And when I go into Books A Million and look at the Christian book section, I'm just like, oh my goodness. There are so many gospels here. And so what I want us to do is hopefully I got your attention a little bit. Maybe even stepped on your toes. I'm okay with that. But I want us to look just a moment and just kind of try to see through the eyes of what would be the gospel according to Jesus. So our message title today is the God of love and light. And we're going to look at the most famous verse, the most famous summary of the gospel, John, <clears throat> sorry, John 3, 16, and we're going to continue through 21. So we'll see that the gospel is all about God's saving love and God's revealing light. That's what we'll see in verses 16 through 18, God's saving love. In verses 19 through 21, his revealing light. So the context of this is that Jesus is coming out of his conversation with the great Pharisee and religious teacher, um, Nicodemus. And there's some debate on whether, um, uh, among commentators, among Bible people, whether or not Jesus is still speaking in John 3.16, or if John, the author of the book, has now switched to commentary. So in some of your Bibles, if you've got red letters, um, some, sometimes the red letters continue all the way through 21, because whoever... Was, uh, was printing that Bible believes that Jesus is continuing to tell Nicodemus about this. I actually tend to think that it ends in verse 15 and that John is actually taking some time right here to go ahead and just explain what just happened. Let me just give you a gospel summary. John does that quite often as he's giving these testimonies and eyewitness accounts. He'll uh, sometimes pause and just tell you what it means and how this fits into the larger scheme. So if, if this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is all about what does, it's, it's Nicodemus and Jesus and what they believe about God and salvation, this in, in verse 16 all of a sudden zooms way out and it's about God and the world. So it was Jesus and Nicodemus talking about the new birth, what it means to be saved. Now John, I believe, just zoomed this out and goes, here's what this conversation with Nicodemus means for the whole world. God and the world. How does salvation work? What is the gospel according to Jesus? John will explain to us here. So, um, so here we go. Let's look at God's saving love, love in verses 16 through 18. It says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So the reason for God so loved the world. And what is this world like? We see that it's a perishing world. God has a love for a perishing world. The world is corrupted by sin. The world has a problem. The world is perishing because of its rebellion. And by the world, John here means people. He's not talking about trees and mountains per se. He's talking about the whole of humanity. He's talking about people. And God so loved the people of earth 
that he gave his only son. Now, why? Because there's something wrong with the world. The world is perishing. We see that in verse 16, that it should not perish. The default setting of the world and every human being in it, apart from God's intervention, is headed towards perishing. And condemnation, verse 17 and 18. Because it says whoever does not believe is condemned already. Our default setting because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. We have all we have all received this sin nature, this disposition where we want to be God. We want to do what we want to do. We want glory for ourselves and not glory for God. And so we have corrupted ourselves and are on a destiny of perishing apart from God. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. Not one person is worthy of eternal life. Not one person is qualified to live with God. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. So the words that come out of their mouth are like a rotting corpse to God. Because they're dripping with so much self and not for his glory. Their throat is an open grave. They're, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. Like they just poison each other with what they say about each other. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's God's assessment when he looks at the world. And how it treats one another. Now, any of you have taken like a world history class, you would know that it's not been the Garden of Eden, right? It's full of disaster, right? Full of calamity, full of evil. And God says, now what's, what just totally blows my mind is that God can look at a world that's doing that to him, in front of him, boldly, brashly. And it says at the very beginning of John chapter 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world is there anything in that world that's worthy of his love not one thing I think if I was God I would have, would have just stepped on the universe and started over but God is the kind of God that even in this rebellion God's like I want I want to enter that and I want to save them now it's not because God is needy like he's lonely and it's like this is the best I've got and so I just can't live without him. It's not that. There's a song, uh, a very uh, prominent worship song that says you didn't want heaven without us so you brought heaven down. That's just bad theology. God's fine. God is fine. He's not up there. He's not needy. He's not going, oh, I hope they like me. Maybe if I die for them, they'll finally like me. It's like that's not, God's not needy. He's fine. The Trinity is so full of love that that love actually overflows on undeserving sinners. And how did he do this? Through the giving of the Son. Through the giving of the Son. So God, the offended party, loves so much that he initiates a rescue plan. That is mind-blowing. And the word so, sometimes we read that God so loved the world, it's like he so loved the world. Meaning like, it's so big. That's not what he's saying. He's saying so in the sense that in this way, God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. God's love is active. It's 
active. Talk is cheap, right? If you were, as a parent, to talk, to ask your kids, how do you know that I love you or that your mom loves you? Very few of them, almost none of them, would say, because you tell me. What would they say? They'd say, because you spend time with me, because you help me with my homework, because you make food for us every night, right? Because when I'm scared at night, I can come cuddle up with you. Like, there's something active, relational, right? And God so loved the world that he didn't just kind of send a message. He didn't send a hologram. He didn't kind of like send some money or whatever or a card. He did send his word, but only in the sense that he was preparing because he himself would enter into that mess. He himself would come into that world and not just enter into it, but actually become the victim of that evil and actually be the one that actually absorbs the wrath of God for sin. That's an amazing amount of love. I love all of you. Some of you I don't know as well. Um, but there's no way I give one of my sons for you. I I'm sorry. Maybe that's not very Christ-like. But God gave his son for spiritual terrorists like you and me. Robbing his glory. Destroying his image. And he loved us enough to come and bear the wrath we deserve himself. He gave his only son. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When, Christ gave his, when God gave his son, he gave him over not just to enter into a broken world and experience the pain and difficulty that we all experience, but actually to go to the cross and to bear the full weight of his eternal wrath against our sin for us and then freely give us a pardon. Freely give us the righteousness he deserves, that he earned. Romans 3, 23 through 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God put forth as a propitiation. That's a, that's a good word. If, if you're playing Scrabble sometime and you play propitiation, you let me know. I got something free, a free book for you or something. Propitiation means satisfaction. It means that there's some sort of debt that needs to be paid and someone pays for it with blood. I mean, propitiation is sacrificial, um, a sacrificial word wherein the anger and rage against something is satisfied because it's paid. The death penalty has been taken and now there's nothing left. There's no wrath left. So God put him forth as a propitiation by his blood. There are some who would think, especially in this moralistic deism, therapeutic deism camp, that don't like the idea of Jesus dying in our place for our sin. Um, sometimes people call that, that's like a cosmic child abuse, or that's some sort of like, why would God do that? And certainly he wouldn't send anyone to hell, and certainly he's not that mad at me, and just totally undermines the gospel, and it's exactly what the scripture says, that there was a need for blood to satisfy the justice of God, and Jesus provided that so that we wouldn't have to. Some, some have said that's a bit like someone, you're sitting on the dock, you're fishing, and someone goes, I love you so much, and jumps off the dock and drowns. Unless there's a payment for sin, the death of Jesus makes no sense, right? But God so loved the world that he gave his only son, because if he doesn't give his son, they're all going to perish. Something happens on the cross 
There is a transaction that's made. God didn't just send his son to die on the cross to show that how, um, how the victim will eventually overcome the, the, um, the, the um, offender. It's not, it, it, it's not some sort of like metaphor. There is actually on the cross of Jesus Christ a transaction being made where blood is being paid, anger is being satisfied, a sentence is being fulfilled, and we are set free from that. The cross of Jesus is not just some sort of moral example. It's a transaction between the Father and the Son on your behalf. Which means that we are desperately, desperately wicked. If it took that to save me, then I really was far more wicked than I could ever imagine. Right? And God is far more loving than I could ever dream. God put forward as a propitiation by his own blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over our former sins. He was patient. He didn't just immediately kill Adam and Eve in the garden. He doesn't immediately send you and I to hell, although we, we deserve that. He was patient with the sins of the world because he had a plan for dealing with them without sending us to hell. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. The violation against God has to be paid. A wrong was committed. It needs to be made right. And it'll either be made right with us or be made right in Jesus for us. 1 John 4.10 says, in this, in this is love. This is what love is all about. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Something tremendous is happening when God gave his son. And Jesus actually in the garden of Gethsemane before he's about to go to the cross and bear the wrath of God. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, yours be done. Meaning, that there was no other way to save sinners. Other than the God-man. Eternal God, sinless man was to bear the wrath in their place. There was no way to escape the perishing. That's why God sent his son. Does it make sense? Huge. Hugely significant. This one verse even. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So just a quick application here. Divine love is fundamentally self-giving. Love seeks the well-being of the beloved. Divine love is not permissiveness, but rescue. Right? Sometimes it's like, well, that's kind of judgmental. Shouldn't we just love people? Well, it's not loving to let people go to destruction. Right? It's loving to intervene and to rescue and to tell the truth, even if it's not always received very well, which we'll get to in the second part of the message. And lastly, to whoever believes in him. So this escape from perishing, this entering into eternal life with God forever comes through belief in him. Not works or reform, not trying harder, not trying to make up for the wrongs, but belief in the provision of Jesus Christ. Belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not just kind of trying to follow some of the good examples or try to live the way of love or whatever that means, but to acknowledge our sin and brokenness before God that we are the ones who are perishing and that by trusting in who Jesus is, what he did is what saves us. The message of Christianity, the gospel according to Jesus here, is the most inclusive and exclusive message in the whole world. 
It's exclusive in that there's only one way to God. And if God had not, had not initiated that, sent his son, the whole world would perish automatically, condemned. But there is one way. And the word whoever, the word whoever means it's the most inclusive message in the whole world. That you don't have to try to get it right. You don't have to try to get yourself cleaned up to come to God. You don't have to all of a sudden become a white American and then come to Jesus. You just believe in him and you're brought into the kingdom. You don't have to grow up in a certain place. You don't have to have a certain amount of money. You don't have to kind of clean yourself up at all. It's the most inclusive and exclusive message in the whole world. And that's part of the mastery of it. Only God could come up with this. Man-made gospels are easy. Do these five things. Do these seven things. Uh, follow this weirdo, you know, whatever. It's all works-based. There's only one where someone has done it on your behalf, dealt with both your sin and given you right standing. And that's through the gospel because of God's love. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So that's the good news. The second part in verses 19 through 21, we see God's exposing light. This will go a little bit quicker. It says this, and this is the judgment. So in verse 17, he said he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So Jesus didn't come into the world going, all right, I'm going to let God, have, I'm just going to take it out on you. Like, no, I'm going to absorb what should be taken out on you. Right? He sent his son into the world to save the world. Not to condemn the world, but the coming of Jesus did render a judgment. It did expose something in humanity. This is the judgment. This is the exposure. This is the rendering of a verdict. Light has come into the world, meaning Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now we'll see that through the whole rest of the gospel. You can read that in all the gospels. Is that Jesus just cut a dividing line right between people. In that some people hated Jesus. They hated the light he brought and it exposed. That in their heart of hearts they didn't really want salvation from God. They wanted to earn a righteousness of their own. And some people flocked to Jesus. Because they understood that in their sin there was nothing they could do. And God made a way through Jesus. He turned on the light, so to speak, into the dark world. And here is the condition of the world, Romans 1, 18 through 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So this is the world state. This is you and me. Since what has been made known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? All of a sudden, we didn't have eyes for the light anymore. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They began to worship the created things except for, instead of the creator 
And Todd, it's like the lights went out, right? Our foolish hearts were darkened. So now the light of Jesus comes, and it's like it's just hard for our eyes to adjust, right? And so this bright light either makes us want to hide or it makes us want to see, right? And that's what he's saying is that when Jesus came into the dark world, everything was exposed. Everything was turned on. And you began to see who those who, who the whoever's would be. That's what we'll find out here in just a moment. The whoever's would be exposed by the light. The whoever would believe and receive eternal life would now be seen. Okay? So the world is dark because of human depravity. Jesus came into the dark world, turned the light on. His very presence, his very work, just shined a light and totally exposed everything. So even the Pharisees who you thought were super religious, super close to God, all of a sudden you found out Jesus all of a sudden showed that their motivations were totally different. And these people who were total sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, were flocking to Jesus because all of a sudden you realized that there were people hungry for the light. There were people the light revealed how dark they were. And some people were drawn to him and some people wanted to hide. So he is exposing light. That is revealing the whoever's. Most people love the darkness we see. Why? Because their works were evil. See that in verse 20? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Uh, verse 19 even, they love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, right? Which is a metaphor. I think that was probably literally true, but it was also a metaphor. But just they lived totally in the light. Nothing hidden from each other, nothing hidden from God. And they walked with God regularly in the garden. And then Satan tempted them and convinced them that God is not actually good. That God actually had, did not have their best interests at heart. And so they're on their own. And if they ate this fruit, this one thing, God, if he loved you, would have no restrictions on you. You know, in a universe full of yes, there was one no. And Satan got them to fixate on the one no God gave them and go, would a loving God really do that to you? He's hiding something from you. God is darkness and he's hiding something from you. If you eat this, you'll step into the light and you'll be like him. Then they ate the fruit, and what happened? They were, they fell, and all of a sudden they became afraid of God, who is light, and so they hid and they covered. And that's been our instinct ever since: to hide, to either pretend we're more holy than we are, or to perform, but not to actually come into the light where God was. I sometimes wonder if Adam and Eve, if they had just come to God, like just run to Him, if things would have been different. I don't know. We don't know. That's not what happened. But I just wonder, I just wonder that if they didn't hide, they didn't blame, they didn't run, if things might have, if the judgment might have been less severe. I don't know. That's, that's speculation. But ever since then, we've all been tempted to hide. We hide from each other. We hide from God. We pretend. And so the light comes. And our reflex is to hide. But there are some, the whoever, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that the works, that his works have been carried out in God. So when the light turns on, there's an invitation to come to him and to be cleansed. 
Ephesians 5, 6 through 8 says this. Let no one deceive you with empty words, just like the serpent did. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them in darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true and right. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So you will know them by their deeds, right? Those who believe in Jesus Christ become light and love the light. So it's, it's a bit like this. Let's imagine that you have got a basement. It's unfinished. It's kind of dark. And you've got boxes down there. And it's just kind of this, you know, kind of dungeony place or whatever. And you hear some rustling down there. So you go down the dark basement. You hear some rustling. You flip on the light. And you find that it's your new baby puppy. And it runs up and jumps into your arms. Right? Oh, this is not a bad thing. Now, let's say you flip on the light and you see this gnarly looking rat scurry into the corner. What does the light do? The light exposes, right? And the reaction when the light turns on shows whether that thing is supposed to be there or not, right? In a sense, Jesus came into the world and the whoever's who believe in him, when the light comes on, when Jesus comes into the way, they'll respond to him. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, okay? So that's why we declare the gospel to the whole world because we don't know. We don't know who the whoever's are. But we know when we preach the gospel that whoever's will come. And those who will not believe, they will not humble themselves, they will not admit they're perishing, will scurry off into the corners. They'll hate the light, right? It's a strong image, but it's true. 1 John 1, 5-9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. So this is John. This is the same John. That wrote the Gospel of John, further explaining the Gospel in 1 John. If we say we have fellowship with him while walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, listen to this. If we confess our sins, step into the light. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has never turned away anyone who has come to him. He never has. Those who come to him in faith, wanting to be cleansed, confessing their sin, knowing they're perishing and condemned, and coming and going, I have nothing. But I know you love the world enough to send your son. Did you send your son for me? And he says, yes. He has never told anyone no that has come to him by means of his son. Powerful thing. So here's the amazing thing. This is where we want to conclude. I just want you to think for just a moment that you are so loved by God. You are so loved for, by God that he sent his son for you. So, believe wholly in him and step into the light. Step into the light. We do that by confessing our sins to God, but we also know another passage that says we confess our sins to one another. We live so confident in what Jesus does that we no longer are even afraid to even hide from each other anymore. Because we're not trying to perform. We're not trying to oppress any of you. But the grace of God shines out of someone who's undeserving, receiving the grace of God, and then radiating that. 
one of the most interesting things that I've come across is that sometimes, like as a youth pastor, I would go and I was surprised, but I would show up at Taco Bell, the greatest place in the world. As a youth pastor, you spend a lot of time at Taco Bell. So you walk into Taco Bell, and you see some, your student and a few of his friends sitting there. And immediately, I represent Jesus, whether I should or not, just as a pastor, as a youth pastor. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like this representative of Jesus just totally surprised me. They're sitting in the corner with their friends. It's fascinating. I learned a whole lot about their spiritual life in that moment when they notice I'm in there. Right? This is not any virtue of me. This is just kind of the role I play. But if they all of a sudden go, my pastor's here, I all of a sudden know a lot about their spiritual life. Right? But if it's like, hey, my pastor's here. Come meet my friends. Oh, that tells me something. Right? When all of a sudden something that represents Jesus, there's a light that comes. We're drawn to it. His people are drawn to it. So... Salvation is both personal and public. It's both repentance and faith. It isn't just for new believers. All of life is repentance and faith. All of us need to come into the light. All of life is repentance. All of life is believing in Jesus. All of life is coming into the light. And Jesus actually says now you're the light of the world. And everywhere you go, to the extent that you're walking in the light, you will radiate light and people will be drawn to Jesus through you, right? Not every person that calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. But the person that's walking in repentance and faith, even if imperfectly, will be a light in their community, will be a light in their family, and will draw people to the Savior. And so um, I just encourage you that if there's anything that needs to come into the light today, that you do that. Don't leave today without bringing things into the light and trusting in Jesus. And I'll be here and there's other people as well that if you need to confess with somebody or need someone to pray with you, someone to walk you into the light, man, that's where the love of God is most keenly felt as he does that sometimes painful work of cleansing us of our sins but being free, no longer having to pretend, no longer having to hide. The love of God invites us to believe in Jesus and step into the light. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the gospel, according to Jesus, the gospel, according to John, is so much better than any other gospel of performance, any other gospel of, um, of, of just good deeds or respect for Jesus, that we have a gospel that is far more powerful than that. And God, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I pray that you would help us to believe, that you would help us step into the light, that we would be clean and whole and redeemed and saved and filled with joy in your spirit and have a confidence that detaches us in a good way from the world where we're not trusting in all of these temporary things anymore. And we actually have something to offer people because we have a love that is beyond us and bigger than us. So God, I pray that we would just totally embrace the message of John 3, 16 through 21. We ask this in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.